You're listening to the EHA Haematology Podcast, Episode 3, Infections Following HCT. Welcome back to this third episode of EHA's Haematology Podcast. This is the podcast where you can listen to passionate experts in haematology talking freely about highlights in their fields of expertise. Today's episode speaker is transplantation expert, Professor Sean McCann. Well, Sean, the mic is yours. Hello, uh, my name is Sean McCann. I'm a haematologist. I carried out the first bone marrow transplant in Ireland in 1984, and I was the director of the national program for about 25 years before I retired. So I'm going to talk to you for the next um, 15 minutes or so about infectious complications of stem cell transplantation or HCT, hematopoietic cell transplantation, as I refer to it from here on. Uh, One of the things that surprised me when I started uh, my transplant program was how much time I would spend diagnosing and treating infectious diseases. So rather than giving you a complete list of all the infections and all the treatments, etc. I'm going to give you an overview of my memories of the problems and difficulties associated with diagnosing and treating infectious complications of HCT. So I suppose the first question we would ask is why do we have so many infectious complications? And there are two main reasons. One, of course, is the prolonged neutropenia caused by the conditioning therapy. And the second is damage to the mucosal lining of the gastrointestinal tract, which goes, of course, from your mouth to your anus. And this damage is caused by chemotherapy and radiotherapy of the conditioning prior to HCT. The other uh, um, abnormality uh, is the presence of a so-called right atrial indwelling catheter, which is pretty well essential for HCT. And we'll discuss some of its complications later on. We also have the intriguing possibility raised by Dirk van Beckham in the 1970s in the Netherlands when he found that animals, laboratory animals kept in a totally sterile environment could be transplanted across the HLA barrier without getting severe graft versus host disease and the infectious infectious complications which occur with that syndrome. However, in spite of many attempts the possibility of sterilizing, I mean, the gastrointestinal tract of our recipients following HCT just didn't work in humans. The other interesting um, thing you have to remember is that previous therapy, for example, with AML, acute myeloid leukemia, may involve multiple courses of chemotherapy uh, and may predisposed to deep-seated fungal infections uh, in the recipient when prophylaxis might be indicated. 
And lastly, but most importantly of all, in this age of molecular medicine, remember, we're treating patients and we're not treating diseases. And sometimes we get carried away. Um, okay, um, how can we prevent these infectious complications? Well, initially, uh, the Seattle group pioneered the use of laminar airflow rooms. And uh, these are cumbersome, expensive, and require the use of PPE. So I'd have to say that in the majority of new HCT units, uh, laminar airflow rooms are not required, are not indicated, and certainly are not used. In the COVID-19 era, is hand washing. And I'd have to say that in my 25 years of running a major transplant unit, I found that getting visitors, staff, doctors, nurses to frequently hand wash correctly was the most difficult thing in the world. So it's very important that hand washing is carried out assiduously by everybody working in the transplant unit. But eternal vigilance is what you require. Um, should you wear masks? Well, I'm not going to enter into the whole debate about masks nowadays, but in the COVID-19 era, I guess mask wearing is now, as the French would say, de guerre. Uh, in my days, in the old days, we didn't wear masks. We washed our hands and wore a plastic apron. But as I say, mask wearing is now probably mandatory. Uh, in transplant rooms, you shouldn't allow flowers or pictures on the wall as these can be uh, areas where infection can rest. Um, we got around the isolation of patients without flowers or wall paintings by introducing the open window program. But I, you can look at that up on, on the internet if you like. It involved a multimedia art intervention and was very successful, although unfortunately ignored by most doctors. The other uh, issue which is very important is attention to mouth care. And there are many, many ways you can do this, but I think that all mouthwashes should have a basis of chlorhexidine as being the most important antibacterial and antiviral compound of any mouth infection or mouthwashes used. Uh, prophylactic antibiotics continue to be an area of uh, um, uh, disagreement among doctors. Uh, in my opinion, the use of prophylactic antibiotics is not generally indicated. A prophylactic antifungal therapy may be important with azoles. I favored oral mycostatin, non-absorbable, voriconazole or caspofungin. But look, the whole area of prophylaxis against fungal infections is controversial and there is no easy solution to that problem. I think from the infectious diseases point of view, you have to remember some very basic physiology. First of all, you need to treat pyrexia or fever very early. You can't have the luxury of waiting for blood cultures. And remember, obviously, that the signs of infection, which are in Latin, calor, rubor, and dolor, or pain, redness, and swelling, are not caused by the infectious disease or organism, but are caused by the reaction 
mostly involving neutrophils and macrophages. But of course, if you don't have of these, as you don't have in the post-transplant recipient, then of course you won't have the physical signs of infection other than a fever. So a fever means infection and um, don't wait. Uh, over the last 30 or so years, uh, there has been a gradual but definite change. Originally, when I started transplanting in the 80s, gram-negative bacterial infections, particularly Pseudomonas aeruginosa, was feared. Nowadays, that's very rare. and uh, The majority of infections in transplant recipients are due to gram-positive organisms. So I think it's very important to know what's happening in your local unit, as it may vary from country to country and even from unit to unit within the same country. And you should, of course, um, always use empiric IV antibiotic therapy for treatment of a, of a fever. Now, uh, one of the controversial areas is the right atrial catheter, known as the Hickman catheter, because it was invented by Bob Hickman, and we'll come back to that later. And the question is, when should you remove the catheter? Well, it's arguable. Most people would, would agree that tunnel infections or infections underneath the skin where the catheter is introduced probably require removal. Fungal septicemia, although classically is treated with antifungal agents and by removal of the catheter, we don't actually know if that is necessary. As far as I know, there has been no prospect of randomized study to say whether removal of the right atrial catheter with fungal septicemia is necessary. Although, as I say, most people do it. Now, viral infections primarily involve pediatric units. And I'm not going to really get into the details of pediatric viral infections, except to say that respiratory syncytial virus, which is not common in adults, can be a cause of severe morbidity and mortality in children. I would again uh, uh, encourage you to read the EBMT 2019 handbook for a detailed look at pediatric viral infections. In adults, the viruses we worry about are CMV, EBV, HSV, HIV, VZV, and again, look at the EBM handbook for details of how to diagnose and treat these diseases. All I will say is that when I started transplantation, CMV was a major cause of pneumonia and death, but happily now, as we have active uh, um, or antiviral agents, people very rarely die of CMV infection. Uh, likewise, uh, HSV, uh, when I started transplantation, HSV used to kill people, but nowadays when we have antiviral therapy, that is no longer a problem. One of the very emotive issues and questions is, should the staff, particularly, well, medical and nursing staff, be vaccinated against influenza? And the answer is, Absolutely, yes. But when I discuss this with various senior members of the EBMT, there actually are no 
written indications. And I think that's a real mistake. So I would encourage you in any transplant unit to make sure your staff are vaccinated against influenza. Uh, has COVID-19 caused a problem? Yes, it has. Uh, there are very many guidelines issued, and I won't go into the details now, but you can look them up from the EBMT to ASH to very many other institutions. All we can say is that all products have to be cryopreserved um, and that uh, donors and recipients should avoid all possible contact with COVID-19. Easier said than done. Now let's get back to uh, our old friend and great cause of morbidity and mortality, fungal infections, deep-seated fungal infections in patients following HCT. It's difficult to know the incidence because a lot of the literature is based upon the incidence found at autopsy. And of course, people who die from refractory leukemia or lymphoma following transplant may have fungal infection, but that I think is an exaggerated cause of death. The death really occurs because of refractory disease. So whether fungal infection occurs with that frequency in patients who are responding to therapy is an issue for discussion, I'm afraid, and I don't have the answer. All I can say is that the major problem currently facing transplanters is so-called invasive aspergillosis. And I'm going to stick my neck out now and say that currently we do not have a cheap, reliable blood test for invasive aspergillosis in spite of all the papers written and all the studies done. So what can we say? We can say a couple of things. Number one, you should have a high index of suspicion. Previous treatment with corticosteroids seems to be a predisposing factor in the establishment of, of deep-seated aspergillosis. What methods do we have to diagnose this terrible disease? Well, we have a chest X-ray. And one of the things you need to remember is that aspergillus invades blood vessels and therefore causes lung, we're talking about pulmonary infections mostly, causes infarction, whereas bacterial infections do not cause any abnormality on the chest X-ray. However, chest X-ray findings are relatively late. If you suspect deep-seated aspergillosis, then a high-resolution CT scan is indicated. So it's important that you have a very close relationship where you're with your radiologist to make sure this investigation is available as soon as you need it. Um, patients with aspergillus, because of lung infarction, may develop hemoptysis, which can be dramatic. And, and, and I've seen people literally bleed to death in less than one minute from invasive pulmonary aspergillosis. Now, one of the fashionable ways of diagnosing aspergillosis is the analysis of galactomannan. Uh, galactomannan is a, a, a product of, of the cell wall or polysaccharide on the cell wall of the aspergillus and it's shed it into the blood as the aspergillus grows. And we have a number of tests, the double sandwich ELISA 
or PCR for fungal DNA. The problem is, is that many of these patients will be receiving high doses of intravenous antibiotics, which mainly may lead to a false positive test. However, it should be said that the double sandwich ELISA may become positive before the high-res CT. And the signs to look for, of course, on the high-res CT would be dense circumstances, the air crescent sign or cavities. As I say, we need to really use all of these, a high index of suspicion, high-res CT, and uh, a blood or serum analysis for galactomannan. The other area which is written about is the so-called uh, bronchoalveolar lavage fluid analysis of galactomannan. Now, bronchoalveolar lavage is not without its hazard in a very ill patient who may be hypoxemic and thrombocytopenic. So again, you need to have a very close relationship with a very good respiratory physician. And if you can get so-called BAL fluid, then analysis for galactomannan may be helpful. But as yet, as I say, we have no simple, cheap, reliable test for invasive aspergillosis, which is a major cause of morbidity and can be a cause of mortality and certainly keeps transplanters awake at night, if not their patients. So in conclusion, I would say to you that nowadays bacterial infection is rarely a cause of death in HCT recipients. Children more than adults are subject to severe respiratory infections from viruses, which may cause morbidity and in some cases, mortality. As I've said, in adults, we need a cheap, reliable, rapid diagnostic test for invasive aspergillosis. And I'm going to leave you, leave you with a little homily. Um, there's a man called Bob Hickman, who was a pediatric nephrologist who I had the honor of working with in Seattle in 1981. And he invented the right atrial catheter. And in spite of all the molecular biology and wonderful papers written, if you talk to patients, the introduction of the right atrial catheter probably did more than anything else to facilitate the establishment of hematopoietic cell transplantation and from which patients, and I'd have to say staff, are eternally grateful. So I leave you with those few words to ponder on and again recommend the EBMT 2019 Handbook. That was Professor Sean McCann for Episode 3 of EHA's Haematology Podcast. For other topics, we highly recommend the rest of this podcast series. For now, thank you for listening. And hey, if you're passionate about haematology yourself, why not contact us and star in your own podcast episode? You can reach us at education at ehaweb.org. Goodbye.